Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today, I have a special episode for you. At the end of January, Rewildology celebrated its first birthday, and in that time, over 50 conservationists from multiple countries, fields, and backgrounds appeared on the show. While every person had their own unique story and life experiences, I started to notice a few themes across interviews. I've compiled a list of them here and wanted to share with all of you a set of tips about how to move forward in a conservation journey. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list, and I'm sure I'll put together another one of these episodes in the future, but these eight items will hopefully give you some things to ponder on. Also, really quickly before we dive in, I want to ask you if you notice an improvement in my recording quality. I recently partnered with Focusrite to take the podcast to the next level, and they sent me a Scarlet Solo Studio kit. This thing is freaking amazing, and I'm going to be completely honest that I'm still getting a hang of it, but I wanted to let you all in on a little secret that some big things are coming. I want to make this show as high quality as I can for all of you, and the recording gear is a huge step in the right direction. They're actually an audio equipment company first that is growing a podcasting arm, which is how I connected with them. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can check them out if you're a musician or a fellow podcaster. You really want to check them out. Okay, now on to the eight things I've learned so far from the 50 plus guests on the show. Number one, there's not one way to do conservation or be a conservationist. i found it fascinating that almost every guest brought this up in one form or another, and I couldn't agree more with each of them. I'll explain further from my own experiences. Throughout my career, I've met several people with a strict view of what conservation is, what it isn't, who is a conservationist, and who isn't. Not only is this view hurting progress, but it couldn't be further from the truth. We brought all these guests that are creating the most impact all agree and said in their own way that not one answer to conservation exists. And let's be real, if it did, then none of us would be doing what we're doing. And anyone could be a conservationist. If you're skeptical, listen to how Oxford defines conservationist. Quote, a person who advocates or acts for the protection and preservation of the environment and wildlife. So if anyone is making deliberate decisions to better the planet and reduce their impact, then by definition, they are a conservationist. There's more than enough room at the table. In fact, most seats are empty. We need people from all backgrounds collaborating and brainstorming solutions. As we've heard from guests all around the world, every natural area is unique with its own conservation challenges and thus requires its own set of solutions. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and we need more people with unique skills and life experiences to help us see problems in a new light and reach better solutions, because that's why we're here, right? <laughs> Number two, keeping an open mind is crucial to succeeding in this field. Piggybacking on point number one, we need to keep an open mind and not close ourselves off to new ideas if we are to succeed in our greater mission. I really love the way Ginny Wong put it in episode 63, quote, nobody's perfect, nobody's culture is perfect, and we must keep an open mind. It's so easy to become stuck in our ways and rely on our training to tackle new problems. 
But in doing so, we're potentially overlooking a more fitting solution. Collaborating with others that are strong in your weak spots is a fantastic way to reach new heights in your own work. Number three, the ways of old are out. This is another large theme that spans across several interviews. The old ways of doing conservation are going out the door. It's no longer acceptable for a foreign academic to come into an area, determine a recovery plan without input from the local community, and then leave. Multiple researchers and organizational representatives have shared that the only way they start a project or determine a course of action is by first engaging with and gaining support from local communities. Community-based conservation, or CBC for short, and honest collaboration are becoming the standard versus the exception. If you're a researcher or want to do research with a culture that isn't your own, then I highly recommend checking out episode 42 with Kayla Cranston, PhD. She's a conservation psychology professor and shares several tips on how to use psychology to first, not offend a community, because, you know, that's goal number one. And second, to truly understand the issues at hand and come to solution with locals. As Kayla said in that episode, people are the problem and people are the solution. Tip number four, putting pressure on legislators and governments is the best and sometimes only way to create change. Oh, yes, the political tip that all of us wish we could avoid. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how we all enter this field thinking we're just going to work with wildlife? Oh, I was that naive as well. If you've been in the field for any length of time, then I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. As we've seen time and time again, putting pressure on government and regulators is sometimes the only way to create change. Speak up and advocate. Write to your senators. Set up appointments with congressmen. Sign petitions. If we want systemic change, then we have to share our knowledge with the people who make political decisions. The recent wolf slaughters in the United States are a perfect example of the power of legislation for or against conservation. In late 2020, gray wolves were removed from the Endangered Species Act, a federal law. When federal protection was removed, wolf management returned to the power of the states. Havoc ensued the next hunting season. A couple of wolf states even openly shared that they plan to reduce their wolf population by 90%. I literally almost peaked when I read those headlines. They were well on their way to accomplishing this grotesque goal, but thankfully wolves recently gained protection in almost every state except a few that are causing the most damage. This is a perfect example of the power of public outcry and that our work is never truly over. Unless wolves regain federal protection in every U.S. state, then they will remain in danger from insane hunting quotas. I'll add links to this issue in the show notes, and I've considered doing a whole episode on this topic. If you're interested in me covering this issue in a future episode, please DM me on Instagram at Rewildology with your thoughts. Some other examples mentioned by guests are mandatory turtle-safe shrimping practices in the U.S. as explained by Brad in episode 59. The U.S. also only purchases shrimp that are caught using these same methods. In episode 60, Frank Garita discussed the newly established ocean corridor spanning from Costa Rica to the Galapagos Islands, creating an underwater highway for marine life. Episode 7 with Haley Hawkins is literally all about political lobbying for wildlife, and I highly recommend checking out that show to hear more about leveraging politics for conservation. 
Number five, changing one habit at a time is the best way to live a more eco-friendly life and sticking with it. Let's face it. Changing habits is hard, and the modern conveniences of today make it even more difficult to switch to usually less convenient, sustainable options. Sasha Francis in episode 54 and Christine Figener in episode 61 both laid out fantastic tips for slowly but surely leading more eco-friendly lives. Changing everything at once will surely lead to failure and make us all feel guilty for not sticking to a green lifestyle. Do yourself a favor and replace plastic items with sustainable alternatives as you run out of them. The same goes for habits. Maybe you really want to start composting, unplugging all of your electronics when not in use, growing your own food, and buying as many things as possible in bulk. That's a lot. Start with one of your eco-conscious goals, perfect it, and then move on to the next. Imagine the progress you'll make at the end of the year if you adopt just one sustainable habit each month. Number six, no one is perfect, even the most dedicated conservationist. This one definitely makes me feel better about my past failures, and hopefully it does for you too. Every guest has been kind enough to openly share about how they failed as something along their path, and most of the time it was something pretty major. No one's journey is perfect, including yours, and that's okay. Embrace your mess and turn it into a message for someone else. Number seven, carefully consider the next stage of your career. This tip is incredibly valuable. Charles Von Rees, PhD in episode 37, and Stotra Chakrabarty, PhD in episode 48, are both in academia and spent a lot of time sharing their wisdom about graduate school. If you missed these episodes, I'll give you a quick recap. PhDs aren't for everyone and obtaining the maximum degree level won't necessarily get you the career you're looking for. So before applying to a PhD program or deciding on your next move, ask yourself these important questions. What do I actually need to reach the next stage of my career? What valuable skills am I lacking? Where do I see myself in 10 years? Really evaluate yourself. Maybe even sit down with a notebook or blank Google Doc and chart out your current assets, the skills you need to land the opportunity you're looking for, and your greater dreams and goals. Then reverse engineer all of them. If you want to be a director of conservation for a well-known organization, the executive director of a nonprofit, a professor, or maybe even a sustainability manager for a startup, what do you need to do to make this happen? Your life is in your own hands, and as Alex said in episode 62, you are your best advocate, and you need to fill your toolbox with the tools that you need to succeed. Number eight, you deserve to be paid for your time. I wish someone would have told me this when I first started down my path. Maybe I wouldn't be in so much student loan debt, but hey, that's my story. One of Rewatology's next guest is an advocate against exploitation in the conservation field. And in that episode, we spent a lot of time discussing this very important topic. To boil it down, you deserve to be paid for your time unless you willingly volunteered for an unpaid opportunity. As you can guess, exploitation isn't black and white and has a lot of nuance. So hopefully next month's episode will help steer you in the right direction if you're experiencing any self-doubts 
or upset that you can't take on unpaid work in exchange for experience. All right, friends, that's what I have for you for today's episode. As always, I'd love to talk with you about your thoughts on these themes as shared by Rewildology's guest. Also, if you have a moment, check out the redesigned Rewildology website. It is absolutely wild. While you're there, sign up for the Rewildology newsletter to stay up to date on all of the podcast shenanigans. Next month is shaping up to be super fascinating, and I can't wait to share the next round of guests with you. Remember, everyone, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.